Good afternoon, good evening, good metal. My name's Coop and welcome to the Spoken Metal Show. This episode was a lot of fun. Got to sit down with Thomas and we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. Just want to say thanks to everybody that was suggesting people who should come on the show. And subsequently, off the, off the back of the suggestions, we have on Thursday the fantastic and powerful Joe Mortimer uh, representing uh, an extreme side of music that I've been kind of dipping into and I wanted to kind of bring forward and people to to hear a little bit more about a fantastic individual joe a lot of people suggested for him to come on the show so we got in touch and we made it happen i've got someone else coming on next week the, uh, from across the pond as well also based upon people's suggestions so if there is someone you want to hear on the show or you think should come on the show please suggest to them uh to me and they can message me or i'll message them and we'll try and make this this work i often thought that i'd run out of people and now the list is just getting bigger than ever and i want to thank the listeners and uh, you the audience for doing that which is superb also the suggestions of things that we should cover has come up um and really kind of blossomed in in, in light and we thrown it out there and saying listen what do you want us to talk about to so do that on the the friday live show where we go okay what do you want to talk about and from that i get a list of people that i should be listening to artists you should be listening to but the overriding thing that comes up is the talking about how after the pandemic and the coronavirus, how the live music scene will look, what will live venue scenes look like? And that's a it's a huge topic and I'm kind of toying with how to approach it. Possibly some kind of Zoom conference like we did with the Get Into This and uh, we did uh, with the Get Into This when we did it at the at phase one and we did the metal conference. We could do maybe something like that. I've got a fabulous guest next week, um, which will be uh, from across the pond based on suggestions as well. So it's going to be interesting to see kind of different people's takes from all across the world as well. Just thank you again for listening to the show. Thank you for sharing it. It's the only way this continues, the only way it stays interesting and more important relevant. And it entertains you. I hope it does. I hope the show really does entertain you while some hours away, maybe amuses you or informs you in some way. And that's always really been the goal for me. So without further ado, let's get straight. Let's get straight to it. This is uh, Thomas Shrimpton. Uh, let's get, let's swim, get swimming as the sun sleeps. As a drum tech, a drum tech support, and a drummer in couples therapy. Uh, toured relentlessly. You know, great guy, uh, wonderful drummer. Really want to check out. I'll put links on the podcast. Um, to his drumming sort of information and videos that he does. Really informative. Really interesting style. Nice and relaxed and stuff. You can learn an incredible amount from him. And we talk about everything. We talk about starting up and being in metal bands and touring and what that looks like and the pitfalls of signing contracts and having contracts and kind of the, the things that can happen from that. Um, really interesting conversation with a really sort of positive person, you know, fabulous, fabulous drummer. And I'm going to put links to all the, the, the various projects he's been because he's been in every single band that's ever existed, uh, but toured relentlessly. So there's an enormous amount that, that people may get from this who are thinking about that type of lifestyle and thinking about kind of drum teching and the whole sort of outlook about how you approach, you know, the very sort of movement through as a musician, the different phases that go on. He's had a very interesting life, but also just a really good outlook on, you know, uh, positivity throughout. And I thought that was a really strong message and I wanted to get that across um, with him where we, we, we covered a lot of stuff and we'll probably cover some more. Shall we get him on again? Yes, most definitely we will. Well, here for now, please enjoy Thomas Shrimpton. So, ladies and gentlemen, I am joined by the fabulous Thomas Shrimpton. Uh, what a what a nice little little what a massive CV the gentleman's got. Uh, let's swim, get swimming. Uh, as the sun sleeps, couples therapy. Uh, he's a fabulous dr- drum tech, uh, to crazy drum tech. Uh, you know, and an all round superb drummer as well. Anybody that's seen the gentleman online and seen the stuff that he's doing. 
super nice, Tom, but he's also really fucking good at his job. Like, so we're going to get into all of that. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Thomas Shrimpton to the show. <laughs> hey, dude, how's it going? You're right. I'm all right, big man. I'm all right. Um, so, I mean, we've been trying to get this one done for a while, haven't we? We're going to try. We were going to try and do it in person, and then life intervened, so we couldn't get it done, unfortunately. Yeah, we met uh, um, Liverpool at that wrestling show. No, the, yeah. the after-party wrestling show, wasn't it? Yeah, I think, uh, what, who was it? Uh, was it As The Sun Sleeps played it? Yeah, it was As The Sun Sleeps and Junior. Yeah, Junior, that was it. Yeah, yeah we kind of got talking off, off, off the back of that. We were kind of trying to get get it together, but Tom's based in uh, in, in Brighton. So it was uh, it was a little bit of a slog. And what we were going to say, we were going to, we were, we were okay, I'll wait till you come through touring and I'll catch you then. And I was like, oh, shit, look what happened. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the best laid plans. So, I mean, there's a lot to cover with this, ladies and gentlemen. I know there's a lot of people have a lot, will have a lot of questions about what, what Tom does. It's probably best, as, as always, to kind of start where where does music kind of come into your life? Then when does it all begin for you from a music point of view? Um, it's, I, was actually, I guess I was really late, uh, I guess, compared to most people. Most people, I guess, kind of get into music when they're, you know, a kid, like six or seven or whatever, when they start playing drums. Yeah. Um, but I was... I just liked music at the beginning. I had no intention of being a drummer, if I'm totally honest. I literally had no interest. <laughs> I liked football, and that was it, every day. Um, <laughs> and then I got kicked for Christmas, as, as they do when I was 14 or 15. I think I was about 15. Yeah. And, um, and that was it. That was it, straight in, playing. Uh, the first one I ever learned was, I believe, the thing called Love by the Darkness. <laughs> okay. Classic, yes, classic banger. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was just straight in, just absolutely head over heels, went straight into lessons. And that didn't last too long. It lasted about a year. And I was in a band straight away within about within about a couple of months. I was just obsessed. And um, that band was uh, it was a <laughs> it was called uh, This Time We're Fighting Dirty. It was classic kid band, you know. That's not bad. That I'm, I'm obsessed with with first band names. I've heard some brilliant ones, but that's all right. That's okay. That's not too bad. Well, TTWFD was a bit of a mouthful. I'll give you that after a few <laughs> um, But yeah, that was awesome. Straight away, we went and did an album. I've got I've got it on my on my iTunes. So I'll have to send you after this because it is. It's, I'm not you know I'm not gonna lie. I reckon we could have got signed if we weren't. It wasn't bad, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I still listen to him now and go, you know what, if that was actually produced not by someone who's rubbish, it would have been good. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing to me that you, it seems you moved fairly fast. It seems like you, you very much fell in love with it and just kind of embraced drumming and embraced everything fairly quickly. Was it quick? a quick process? Or? Mate, absolutely. So I was in my first signed band uh, just after school in um, when I was just turned 17, actually. So just wow. turned 17. Um. I don't know if you remember them, Rising Records. I remember Rising Records, yeah. Obviously, that did, obviously his record label turned out to be a bit of a, bit of a mess. As I'm yeah, sure it didn't really work out, yeah. No, but, um, but when he wasn't a tax evader and a massive crook, it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> What's amazing to, 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 to me is that, like, even at, at 17, even if you're a good player, you're not even close to being the, the musician that you, you, you are when you're kind of, like, you know, in your 20s and 30s. You, at 17, you've still got a ton of mistakes yet to make. But if you park that to the side, there's also the you're just 17 aspect yeah. of it. Do you know what I mean? It's like you're not old enough to drink, technically I speaking, and, you, and so like which venues you can go and stuff. And then I throw into the whole business thing. That was too, I mean, there's obviously the, you know, the, the, the arrogance and ignorance of youth. We've all had it where you kind of just go, it doesn't matter. Let's just sign this record deal. Let's just sign this whatever deal and let's just get this done. And you know, there's, there's, but the, what's what I'm getting to is that that's an amazing thing to have of kind of being like, you know what, it doesn't matter. Just let's go, let's go on this adventure, irrespective of how it turns out. That's a 
there's a wonderful sort of, you know, wonderlust to that. I love that. Like, but 17 and going and doing an album. Yeah, it was, wow. pretty, I'm not gonna lie, it was pretty crazy. It was, it was so, so from the, so when we, so we met at a thing called Rock School. I don't know if you had to have Rock School. I, yeah, you, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so in Swindon at Churchfield School, which is now called the Lawn Something Academy, which I couldn't believe. I've just, I've just come back to my hometown for this during this pandemic and I was going for a run and I was like, Churchfield was a shithole, mate. Probably. <laughs> So many of my mates in Churchill to listen to this, but yeah, now it's called the Lawn Lawns of the Academy, and it's all royal blue. And I was like, "Wow, this place is changed." <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so we used to go to this bloody school, and all the musicians that were in Swindon went to this place. And I was I was quite late, so I, as I said, I started mm. quite late. So I went to a thing called drum school, and um, just occasionally someone would come in and say, "There's you know, there's an opening for rock school, and I want to do it." And every time I was like, "Yes, please, yes, please." And um, I did a cover of Chop Suey, and luckily managed to get in. And that's where I met um, the boys, um, the Deadly Waiting guys. Yeah, and um, that was where it all began. Literally straight away, I, I joined in because one of the guys, Patrick Campbell Blight, was going to leave, which was the drummer. So I jumped in, and then in two weeks was the Rock School gig. Yeah, and they said, "Do you fancy doing that?" I was like, "I've been here for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't even set behind the kit yet." Um, and we were like, "Yeah, okay, let's do it." So we wrote two songs within a week and uh, played the gig, and that was it. We were all just yeah, all just really really good friends, um, and just yeah, it was it was. Was, man, I'm trying to wrap my wrap my brain of obviously the timeline. But then we did a little EP called yeah. I think it was self uh, titled Lily P. Did the standard thing. We were 16 at this point. We sent it to all the record labels, you know, Road Runner and yeah, uh, who was it at the time? Um, and it's, and uh, I'm going to say, but yeah, loads loads of you know independent metal yeah. records and stuff. And then Rising Records got back to us. Yeah. And by this point, we we done about we done a good three or four UK tours at 17, I think. Wow. It was yeah, we were on the road pretty quick. Were you the youngest? Were you the youngest guy in the band, or what was the age sort of? No, there was, there was one guy who was who was I think he must have been eighteen or nineteen. The rest of us were just seventeen. Wow, the rest of us were all wow. kids. Um, so yes, we, we got the message from Rising Records saying, "Look, come and play a gig in so, uh, in um, oh goodness me, Ipswich. Come play a gig in Ipswich." Mm. Um, and we already we already had a gig that afternoon, so we had to do a gig that afternoon, then drive up to Ipswich, go and do the gig in Ipswich, and then we had to be back down south again for our gig in Bristol. So in, in, in 24 hours, basically, we've done three gigs just to make sure that that gig would work. Yeah. It's just extraordinary to me that that was like, uh, you know, at, at that age as well, you know. It's, so what do you, what was, what, what did they sound like? What did this band sound like? Was it, was it pop punk? Was it, where were we with it? What was it kind of this horrid? This was a yeah, straight up heavy metal band. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, uh, we, we got into singing choruses in the end, but at the very mm. beginning, I don't think there was any singing. I think it was just straight-up guttles and stuff. Yeah. Um, and some of those, I think one of them made onto the first album, actually. Called, uh, it was called The Last Stand. That made onto the album from that first EP. Mm. And, um, yes, we did the gig in Ipswich. We saw this geezer. We don't know what he looked like. We saw this geezer. He stood around the show, and he left straight away. We're like, fucking hell, we blew it, boys. That was shit, wasn't it? And uh, then we got, an, we got, literally got a message half an hour later after a gig saying, be in my office Monday morning. Wow. That was it. So we had, our parents all had to drive us down because we were underage. We were all 17. Yeah, so our, yeah. our parents, bar Justin, one of the guys, had to sign the contracts for us on our yeah. behalf. Wow, that's extraordinary. <laughs> did, you, did you, were you kind of like, I mean, you wouldn't know what you were signing almost, would you? I mean, it's good that you've got your parents and that's probably why that rule exists. Like, you know, but even then, what did you, did you, were your parents kind of a, of a musical ilk? Did you know what you may be signing for? Or Not at all. Or advances or? Not at all. None, none of our parents 
as far as, as far as my knowledge goes, none of our parents were musically minded. But luckily, when I was 17, I went to the Academy of Contemporary Music in Guildford. It sounds much more fancy than it is, I promise. It's not. <laughs> so I went to ATM and did my diploma. And luckily, they went and sent the contract. When we got the contract, Mr. Switch, I went yeah. back to college and showed it to one of my lecturers. And um, he said, well, I ch- he, he said a few things that he changed. But one of them, um, one of them was uh, distribution of the world. And he was like, in specifics. So I was like, okay, I would have, never, I would have had no idea. Right. I'd have just gone, yeah, cool, the world. Nailed it. Yeah. Because the simple right. things that, like, you know, that you, you really should know when signing things like favoured nations, people don't understand that type of thing. And and, and, and our poor, like, 360 deals. We talk about 360 deals on the show a yeah. lot. Um, and about the kind of the pitfalls. And it, and music industry is littered with young rock and roll star signs terrible deal you know it, the, the, those stories are, are prevalent so how long was the deal for that you first signed was it just for one record or five years shit yeah straight in 17 years old you're contracted until you're 22 that's it wasn't, it wasn't five, years, five albums it wasn't five years five albums sorry okay five, still five albums is essentially longer. five years yeah it's longer jesus <laughs> christ that's yeah. a lot that's a massive sort of uh, anchor to put on yourself isn't it you know well, he did two deals. He did DIY, which is where you pay an amount of money, which I believe was eight grand, and then he would record it and do all the press and all that kind of business. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or you do the five year, and he'll do, and he'll pay for absolutely everything and take a cut. Mm. We were like, "Well, we're seventeen. We haven't got jobs. Let's do it. There's no way we're going to afford eight grand. Let's go for five years. Let's fucking let's do it." Yeah. Wow. Because, ladies and gentlemen, um, Thomas recently, uh, you got your masters, didn't you? In your I did. uh, yeah, in. In, in the music, in for one of a longer way of saying it, the music industry, and it's kind of yeah. that whole. Did you when you when you kind of would study in your masters? Did you think what the fuck did we sign when I first signed that? <laughs> did, you, <laughs> did you did you think did you think Christ on a bike that was that was bad? I, I do. <laughs> when I was sat in that lecture and there was a few album terminologies going around, I was like, "Fuck me, what did we do? <laughs> what was what the hell was that about?" Um, yeah, man, that, I don't regret it because, oh, you know, I got to do some yeah, got to incredible now. things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so in terms of what you were you were listening to yourself at this at that particular time, what were you listening? What was the music you were you go to stuff there? Was it the heavy stuff or was it coming from another place? Well, back when I did the Deadly Waiters. Yeah, yeah, know? when you were first recording with them. Oh, man, I was such a metalhead. Such a metalhead. <laughs> I, uh, I was absolutely obsessed. Well, my, so I would, I, again, I, so, you know, it's just like everyone, I'm sure, you know, you start off listening to Green Day and Eminem, you know, the normal generic stuff. Yeah. And then uh, I remember being an, an, like a, an absolute little nipper and my dad got me a Metal Hammer DVD. Okay. And it had Bullet for Valentine's, Four Words to Choke Upon, uh, Trivium Pool, Hard on the Strings of Your March I know, Hire, I know the, I know the CD and I know the magazine. <laughs> yes. I'm cursed by good knowledge. Yeah. I mean, they used to do like, it, it doesn't happen so much anymore, but they used to, do that where they were with a band. I'm, I'm from a time when they put a plastic uh, vinyl on on the cover of a, of a of a magazine. They don't do that anymore, that's for sure. And yeah, they would put compilation CDs. And normally, what they would do is do it would be bands playing um, covers, so they could get away with kind of you know I imagine legal entanglements that would, sure, would sure. come up from now. So you kind of listen to that. So it was like Bullet for My Valentine and that type of thing. Yeah, that uh, that what what 2004 era, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, like Hand of Blood and stuff, and yeah, yeah, Four That's Words it. to Choke Upon and stuff. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. What a banger. So yeah, that, that was my first opening to metal, and still one of my favourite eras of metal. Like, those, those, um, that anger I don't think exists anymore. You know, really? it's, it's, so, it's overproduced now, I think the anger's gone. Like, don't be wrong, you know, mm-hmm. Architects is uh, one of my favourite metal, metal uh, bands yeah. at the time, but it's not the same yeah. aggression that you get from Slipknot Records, you know. 
Mm, mm. Yeah, well, I mean, like, yeah, Moose is an insanely good drummer for, for, for Bullet, like, you know, insanely good drummer. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting you say that about that aggression. It's it's almost kind of produced out of the music, almost. You know, on a, a show a couple of a couple of shows ago, we, we were talking about how Ross Robinson produced the first um, Slipknot album, and he really and and Corn for that matter, and he really kind of put them in difficult positions to get that uncomfortableness and to get that anger out and stuff. So when you went when you first started going into a studio to record, what was that like? Was that another? wide-eyed i don't know what the fuck i'm doing moment again that, or that was the that was kind of almost that was the first real like oh my god i am not good enough for this <laughs> <laughs> that was the very first moment everything else i was kind of cool about because you know mm. when you write your songs you play to your ability you, you kind of overplay a little bit but you know you learn how to play to that ability and like you know live shows i had never had stage fright still don't I, did, I, I probably have more stage right now than i did before um and uh, I had no problems doing it. Then when I sat down in that seat in that room, it took me six hours to get the first track down. Wow, six you got that red hours. light fever. Yeah. I just sucked. I sucked ass, mate. I was rubbish. Absolutely rubbish. <laughs> um, and then on day two, something clicked and I had the rest of the record track that day, which was a 14-track yeah, yeah. record. You just kind of so, figured it out. You just kind of found your, your space. Like, yeah, it happens. It happens. So uh, yeah. how... how when, did, did, when they... Did they put, immediately put you to work then? Did you go out and start to touring? pretty much in quite intensely yeah so we were, uh our, our first record did really really well it was called we rise and it was out 2008 i think maybe 2009 and um straight away we were on we were on um scuzz tv and Krang tv mm. and in metal hammer big cheese Krang magazine all that stuff you know still only 18 years old like what the fuck is going on yeah it's a and, world. Um, and then we were nominated for a metal hammer award right um Again, being 18, like, are you absolutely mental? Why do you like this music? What is wrong with you? Yeah, <laughs> how, much, yeah. how much has Mark paid you to like this record? <laughs> um, so yes, we're all, we were all pretty blown away from the, from the get-go. So the fact that all those TVs and magazines and you know, all that stuff, they, they dug it straight away. It was so easy to talk. So Mark had an in-house guy called Aid Fisk, uh, who's an absolute G. Um, he booked everything. So we were right. on the road constantly. yeah. Constantly. Well, you got to get it to getting the tour miles in. I imagine you did you did something quite a lot of the festival circuit then. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. We did um, download 09, um, which was really good. At, that was really really great actually because there was no one. We were on the third stage and nobody was playing on the first or second at the time we were on. Oh yeah, you had that little break and people were yeah. checking out. Yeah, yeah. So it was absolutely packed. I mean, being, you know, mental. It was pretty crazy yeah. for us anyway. I still think it's crazy if I think about it now. And yeah. um, I remember, <laughs> I remember straight away. So I, the, the set always started with a four count, and uh, it was my hat, you know, hats in the china, going, you know, so it's nice and aggressive. Yeah. And I hit the four count, and my china flies right off my riser. <laughs> oh, mate! If you could see my face, it was probably priceless. Amazing! I imagine we live in a time where there is probably footage of that somewhere. If someone digs, they yeah. can find that. That exists. It fucking does. You get away with nothing now. Did you yeah. find yourself? noticeably improving on a number of fronts did you find yourself improving as a musician at this point playing live a lot in a lot of intense situations and did you find yourself improving as a musician as a whole like like uh, knowing what to do live and kind of you know being able to orchestrate a set list to kind of really kind of get the pop out the crowd did you find yourself was that noticeable did to you or did, was it still a whirlwind no it was definitely noticeable i i so it's, it's strange. I never practiced. I, you know, I practice, I practice a hell of a lot now. I really do. I, I, you know, I put in a good four or five hours a day normally if I can. 
But mm. back then, nothing. My rehearsals were band practices. We did band practices nonstop. We either yeah. played a gig or we, or we rehearsed in the room. That was it. Yeah. And um, the songs were getting harder and harder and harder. But I was able to keep up much easier than I did at the beginning. And uh, I just kind of, I kind of turned a corner or hit a step or whatever. And it was just, it was easy. And for, well, it wasn't easy. That's a complete lie. It was, that's making me sound a lot cooler than I was. Um, it was a lot. It was a lot easier to, to, to keep up with the harder stuff that we were writing. Mm. Um, it helped that I wrote with some incredible musicians. You know, they were absolutely, you know, phenomenal. Yeah. And um, what if I was always, I was always business minded in the first place. I mean, don't get me wrong. When I was, when I was that age, I was a, <laughs> I, I did drink a lot of beer and had a lot of fun. You know, don't get me wrong. Um, but I was always very, um, very business minded in the, in the way that, you know, I made sure the set list worked and we had the great, um, we had really good um, seamless intermissions between each song. And, and it flowed. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Did you find yourself, did you find yourself because you were at a unique position where you could watch someone maybe side of stage, a little bit of stage tourism and kind of seeing bands and stuff? Did that kind of help as well? And seeing like drum setups and things like that and going, oh, he has a place to the left or his china is this height and, and this is how he marks out his particular kid. Did you get to see that then and kind of informed your own playing? Yeah, that happened more in my early 20s, I'd say. Not mm -hmm. so much, not so much when we were doing the first album because I was still still kind of finding out who I was and I was just yeah like you said I was probably still very much in the moment without realizing that I was just like yes. this is my kit and I'm absolutely loving it and that's mm. that and you know I only focus on our shows um I watched some incredible incredible people side of stage don't be wrong but I was so <clears throat> I was so in my head about what we were doing I didn't I didn't I mean I wish I could go back and look at it now but I, yeah, no yeah. I, oh, yeah. I just had no idea I just had no idea um, you know drums were drums as far as I was concerned and you hit them as fucking hard as fast as you can and that was that <laughs> <laughs> it still is for many, still is for many. so when does that kind of... Do you start going into Europe then? Are you travelling abroad at this point? Yeah, so at 20... About 20, maybe 21. Okay. I'm, I'm going to... Uh, yeah, 2021, let's just go with that. And yeah. um, we did a UK and Europe tour with Trigger the Bloodshed and Bleed From Within. Mm. That was the first big Europe tour we did, I think. And that was a good 60 days or so, 50 days. Right. Um. We were a little bit older this time, so it was, it was a bit easier. You know, we weren't like, little nippers anymore. We were 20-odd. Maybe 19. I can't have really gone. I may all blur into one a bit. But I think <laughs> it was yeah, nice, between 19 and 21, so there's a good yeah. two or three gap there. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that was the, that was the first eye-opener, definitely, in terms of this is how you sound check much better. This is how you tune, skin. Yeah, yeah. What I was kind of kind of alluding to as well is that you kind of understand the flow of a of a of a day. Something like you understand what call sheets are, and you understand what your day sheet is, and how like day rooms work, and how what you're meant to do at a sound check, and what you're meant to do with things. And did you were you in a world where you were doing sort of press as well? I imagine so. You were doing like meet and greets or anything like that. Were you were you even were you in that world yet? We were doing we were doing those kind of things just before that Europe tour. Because we were mainly we were mainly headlining around the UK because we'd done it yeah. so, by that by by nineteen or so we'd done the UK yeah. so many times you know we've done Scotland loads and Wales UK we did it all um, about four or five a good four times I'd say at that point yeah. um, but that UK Europe tour with Bleed from Within Trigger the Bloodshed was our first support tour right so that was when we weren't in, you know we weren't in control of like we just turn up and do our sound check and you know do our thing. So this, yeah. That, yeah, so that really was the eye-opener of, you know, this is your slot time for sound check. You know, 20 minutes, that's what you've got, or half an hour, whatever. This is your room. Because normally we would just get told by our room is and wander in. But yeah. where, you know, where other bands, you know, there's higher bands in this bill, yeah. they've got more importance and they've got higher rooms. So, we, yeah, we really did find our place in that one for sure. Yeah, you kind of, you kind of, it's, 
every when you're in a band for, for those that, that may be listening that aren't aware or just starting out with the band there's very there's, there's certain sort of uh, moments when you realize you're not the biggest fish in this in this pond and you get moved from pond to pond and what will happen is when you go on a, like the large tour one of the games that, that you have to learn to play is you have to be good and your band has to be good that's a given but you also have to learn how to interact with the other people in the band and how not to be a dickhead and and you're not to kind of you know when kate when you're meant to go to catering when you're not meant to go to Kate, how long you're meant to, you learn all the stuff and it's and it's something it's so you can you can't really read you have to learn in yourself how to become like a a more um balanced touring human being i think is probably the best way to put it so were you still in vans at this point or in hotel rooms or do, when did you progress did you progress to a tour bus we always did vans. We never. We were, I reckon if we did one more record, we'd have been there. But you were so yeah. right about that stuff. You learn. You learn so much from being on the road. And like you said, you can't read it. It's just stuff you learn, and you make the mistakes, and that's how you learn. You yeah. Know, no, no one really tells you until you make the mistake. Pe- go, people yeah. often people often think one of the fallacies uh, is that they think that the larger bands pick the bands uh, uh, who, who are going to be kind of supporting them because the record company says you've got to go. You've got to take this band out with you. That kind of does happen from time to time. Not as often as people think. Or it's a buy-on where someone pays to be on that show. But for the vast majority of the time, the people that go out with them are people that they've picked because they get on with those people. That's oh, yeah, why you absolutely. see Bill sometimes where you're like, how the hell are they supporting that band? And you're like, they don't even sound like that, that set the same. But the reason is, is because they probably grew up together or they know each other really well. Because what you want as a as a touring artist is you want everything to be as easy as possible. So if it means like having a, someone out with you, that uh, for like you're out on a 120 day tour, a massive tour, or you're going around the states, you want to take someone out with you who, you, who the two or three days that you have off, you can hang with. You know what I mean? It's incredibly important, and that's why sometimes you get those crazy bills where it's like, how are they supporting them? <laughs> oh no, 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 they're they're really good mates. He used to tech for them and that type of thing. At this stage, did you have any techs with you? Did you have any backline techs or anything like that? No, no, this is, this is all, yourself. Back, back then I didn't even think, you know, they didn't even know they existed, but, you know, Trigger the Bloodshed yeah. did their own gear, and Bleed From Within did their own gear, and they, you know, they were, they were pretty big at the time. Yeah. Um, they had a driver, we, we all had drivers, uh, mm. and they had a sound engineer that was doing both their sets, but we were, we were happy, we were just happy to be touring and playing, yeah. the, you know, hitting the road with these really, really cool shows, some, some men, you know, Europe's very different to the UK, as I'm sure you know. You know, mm. it's the shows are just way better <laughs> in the metal scene. Anyway, yeah. the shows are yeah. way better. They just do whatever the hell they want, and they have the best time doing it. And I used to love that. Just yeah, love that. There's a noticeable change when you get on that ferry, isn't there? Um, or when you fly out to to Sweden or whatever it may be. There's a noticeable change amongst the crew when we get when you get to Europe. It's a weird, it's a weird thing. Anyone that's ever toured with any American artists, when you go in Britain. And then you switch to go into Europe. There's a noticeable change. I can't explain it. It just exists where they suddenly yeah. become even nice to open up more as well. It's very weird. It's a beautiful thing. Europe has a different sort of mentality. A lot of the places that they're in Europe, a lot of the clubs will, will have a night, say a Thursday night or whatever it is, where people will just come to see music, whether your band's on or not, they'll come and just come to see music and they'll go, well, we're going to give you three, you know, three, four minutes or your first two, three songs and if we like it, we're going to give it up. If we're not, then we'll go and go to the bar. But they will genuinely do that. And it's a, it's it's something that the UK's lost a little bit of, of, of people just going to see music, irrespective of if they know that person. 
Um, yeah, Europe's oh, like this magical wonderland sometimes, you know. Massively. I remember it used to be, the UK used to be like that. When I was, you know, 13, mm. 14, I'd go to what used to be the furnace in Swindon and not, never look at the bill, but I knew, I knew all my mates were there on a Friday night, so I'd go down, you know, and there yeah. was a big band or there was some shit band or whatever. You didn't really care. It was you out with your boys and some cool band on or whatever. Um, yeah. That, like, like, Europe's still like that, which is great. Yeah, very that. much so. Very much so. So at what stage do things move along then with this band? So we've got a five-album deal. Yeah. We're, we're in what we're in we're in the second year maybe to year and a half of this we've got an album out when do things start either going wrong or if you want to see it going right you know when did that start to happen so i'd say after that uk after that uk and europe tour with bleeding and trigger bloodshed that was why have we done that by then we play oh god this is so difficult chronologically <laughs> <laughs> putting it together yeah that before or after um I think it was, it was that that UK and Europe tour with Trigger Bloodshed and Blue was a massive turning point for us for sure. Yeah. Um, but we we did um, we did Metal Hammerfest as well, or Hammerfest, right. I think it was called. Yeah, uh, Hammerfest. Yeah. I think that was before that, that that kind of that yeah that that 2010 era was was our was our good one. We yeah. just um, we just done that big UK tour and Europe tour with them. Then we just I think we, then we were in the studio to write Almost Heaven, which was our second record. Um, and that 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 did really well. That did really well. I really enjoy. It. I still I still enjoy that record now. Yeah. And because um, we one of our tunes it was called The Days I'm Gone, and um, that was an, not an instant hit. You know, you don't. I remember it being pretty critically well well received. Like I remember that. I remember yeah. it being pretty oh, well received. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, it was really well received. You know, I think now it's got like three hundred thousand you know views on Facebook on YouTube or whatever, which you know isn't isn't huge, but for us at the time yeah. it was like in a day it was like fifty thousand. Like, yeah, yeah. What was going on. <laughs> um, and we sold like five thousand CDs, which again for us, like it's not you know we're not Rihanna or anything, but that's fucking cool if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so that record was our was our big one. You know, we were then touring Europe on our own. Um, mm. You know, well as our, as our, as as the headliner and still you know filling out for you know three four hundred cap venues and stuff. What did you What did you find changed then from being support to headliner? Because people don't realize as well potentially that that's not just changing where what time you're coming on. It doesn't, you know, oh, there's a whole other world comes into play when you become the headliner. The weight of the, the entire show is on you, right? Exactly. So what did you find has changed? Totally um, uh, well, luckily we'd done loads of UK tours, so we understood what it was like to be a headliner, but doing it in a completely different, doing it in, you know, Finland or Czech Republic or, yeah. you know, anywhere, Italy or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think we, we recognised that, if there was going to be people there, they were there for us, and that's it. Oh, you know, all the support, yeah. back, of course. You know, you know, wasn't all about yes. us. Um, but that that was a pretty mental thought. The fact that you all got bit, you all got booked up pretty quick. You know, we, mm. we did. Um, we were on tour with Scar by Beauty, uh, and they supported us, and they're super great. They were fucking well good. Check it, yeah, check out Scar by Beauty. They were mental, and um, we got booked up super quick. And it was sixty three days, I think. Okay. And I think it was about fifty nine shows in those sixty three days. Wow, okay. It was pretty mental. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe like 57, 57 or something. But it was like, yeah, it was like five or six days off, maybe less. Um, it was pretty onslaughted. So it got booked up really quick. Aid, the guy who was booking it, was well in, is in, is in good contact with us. So we felt kind of comfortable. Because it got booked up so quick, we were like, well, people must be pretty hungry for it, I guess. Yeah. Was, I, I guess. I, you know, can I, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, yes, we were, we were pretty ready. We were, we were pretty stoked. We did the UK run, fine, you know, seamless. You know, not many bad shows, not like I can remember anyway. Um, and then we hit Europe, and it was so much better. It was so good. Yeah. It was 
super special. I'll, ne- I'll never forget some of those times. Not not all of them because there was a lot of beer involved, but I wouldn't forget some of them. <laughs> did you um, find Did you find as you were kind of getting out there that people were going, okay, listen to this band, or you were seeing this band at a festival or whatever? Did you find that your listening tastes grew then? Did they grew almost exponentially from from being kind of out in the field, if you will? Wait, what's the question? Sorry. Did you did you find that listening? Going out and being touring and being around other musicians and people would I would assume would suggest other bands to you and stuff like that. Did you find yourself listening to way more stuff now? Did your ears get opened up to a whole sort of spectrum of music? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so to a degree. I was, I was definitely listening to a lot more local bands. Right. You know, back then you had a little, we had a little CD player in the van, and near enough every single night somebody would give us a CD like check us out or can we do a merch swap or whatever like yeah we'll give you a T-shirt or whatever like we don't really mind. Yeah. Chill. Um, yeah, everyone was always giving me a CD. So we checked out loads and loads of local bands. Big bands, ah, you're, you're, you're so on tour and you're too busy watching a DVD on your laptop or whatever. <laughs> you know, you've, got, you've got a seven-hour drive and then you've got a gig straight away. So you were too busy sleeping or hungover or whatever. Or, yeah. you know, it wasn't a lot of time to check out new music. But we'd always, we'd always whack a CD on in the car. There was always somebody racking the playlist, you know. Yeah. I remember, I remember the first Europe tour we did, we had a sat-nav and... The second we got into France, I might be in a tom-tom, I, I think they're the same thing. Um, and we got into France, and it wasn't configurated. Okay. So luckily we had a, an A to Z or whatever it's called in the, in the glove box. <laughs> and that was it, a month off that. Can you imagine, like, there's, there's going to be young bands out there now touring with, with, with all the technology that I have. I don't realise that at one point we had to tour with a map. They will, never, they will never understand when, we, you know? when, that, when that tom-tom just clocked off and said, no, it won't work. We're like, what are we going to do? <laughs> what do we do now? We've yeah. got to be in Sicily in 10 hours. Where is it left or right? <laughs> it's, where you, it's where you find out if you can do it or not. Like, that's, that's it. Like, so this, this, it, this all seems great. This seems like, you know, album to album is getting your know, performance to performance. Everything seems to be moving in a really <laughs> great stance. It, it feels like there's a, there's a punchline coming up now. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, so, yeah, so obviously all this, you know, second hand received really, really well. We did the Crying Awards and Metal Hammer Awards again. We lost to Clutch, which is fine because they're sick. Yeah. And then we came second to Asking Alexandria at the Crying Awards, but only by 150 votes. <laughs> That's not so, you, know, how, you know, I think we got like, seven, you know, like 13,000. They got like 13,050 or something, something absolutely mental. Yeah. They came up yeah. to us afterwards and said, we've never seen it so close. Here is some um, personalized Krang Zippo we can name uh, inscribed. So that I've still got that at home. I've still got that at home. Um, you know, who wants that big K anyway? You can't share it. I'd rather have a little light. That's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we played on the the HMS Hammer, which is actually the, the yes. boat. Yeah, we played we played on that boat that goes to the Met Hammer Festival. Yeah, I've we, been on I've been on that boat. I've been on that tiny stage as well. Yeah, and what, for those that, for some of our listeners, maybe from from other countries. Uh, along the Thames, you, you have to go to get to the, uh, the 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 Golden Gods and stuff, and the Metal Hammer Awards. They have it normally at, a, at an arena or one of the, the, the sort of ancillary places of the arena, and you travel down on a like a, a essentially it's a barge. It's yeah, like barge. a big sort of yeah barge, and at one end is where you get on, and then there's a whole sort of middle section where people it's, it's a, a, um, a dance floor, if you will, people drink, and then just at the back of it is the stage. Um, and I've, I've I've been on that I've been on that that ship and play on with 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 big bands and it's just an extremely surreal experience. That like is exactly what it was. It was absolutely surreal. <laughs> loading loading our gear onto a boat was something <laughs> I'll never forget. Yeah, <laughs> it was at the time the time I was on it and um, that um, 
the uh, the video of the I'm a boat I'm on a boat motherfucker was on and everybody uh, literally everybody was fucking saying it like because it was just I remember loading and um, like uh, cabs and stuff off the boat I'm thinking what happens if this falls in the water that's an unusual problem I've never had before like you know bizarre so you, you t- it sounds like top of the world stuff you know you 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 basically tie in with asking Alexandra you know you, you're almost like you know the darlings of that newcomer sort of genre in, ge- in general so so what happened then it was just after that Mel Hammer festival <clears throat> no it was just after the crying awards that yeah. the way that it was, it was kind of brought to wasn't quite brought to light at this point but um so mark and his wife um jules she's um Bayesian, which is so she's from barbados right so they relocated to barbados we just thought it was because they wanted to you know they wanted her to be close to her family or whatever um little did we know at the time it was due to tax evasion right so and like i said you know he did he set up all the krang awards and stuff and he did all these tours so he did he did us really really well so mm. it's such a shame that he ended up being such a you know not a great person i guess yeah um so yeah so they moved to barbados we were, we were due our third record at this point so we flew out to barbados sure <laughs> so in 20 i think 2012 we flew out to barbados for three weeks to track our third record which is our which Unfortunately, unfortunately, turned out to be our final record, which was um, oh, "Ascent of the Murder." That was it, because right. uh, "Murder of Crows" in my business. And um, yes, we, that that was something. I remember. I remember a lot of that. And doing a record in Barbados is one of the first things I say when people say, "You know, tell me an interesting fact about yourself." Because <laughs> not many people <laughs> say they've done a record in Barbados. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think what's the what's the recording places in Barbados. There's there's two or three, isn't there? Oh right, yeah, because there's some famous ones. Oh, that's cool. But Barbados, that's like you know, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Did you were you, were you still? It's it sounds like it sounds like you were still kind of rabbits in headlights as well. It was still a bit of a, a ride to you. Did, were you even kind of were you even looking back at this point, or are you just searing ahead because you're you're in Barbados? You're like what twenty, twenty one, something like that. Yeah, twenty one um, at this point now. You know, that's mind-blowing stuff. You know, it's almost too fast to take in, isn't it? You know? Yeah. So you, you know, it was, what was that? So we were signed at 17 and then four or five years later we were in Barbados doing our third record. You know what I mean? It's crazy. So, yeah, it was exactly that. It was very fast-paced. We were just, deers and headlights is a very, very good term to use because we were all, at, we were still stupid, immature little boys. Yeah. You know, we, ne- we never got, we never got the jobs. We never went to college or whatever. We were just, yeah, yeah. we're just idiots. So we, we learned our essential culture from being on the road, I guess, I guess. Yeah um so yeah so yeah we did the and what was what was good fun is actually is that when we got there the the door to the studio was the last thing to arrive and it arrived three days late which meant we couldn't record because there's so much wildlife out there all the birds tweeting and all that stuff yeah if we went to record without the door you would have birds tweeting over this metal record right um so we had three days off as soon as we got there that was it straight to the beach mate (laughs) amazing straight to the beach yes and we lived and we lived in this house for three weeks and it was all you know all the food was you know all the food was made and stuff we did again you know the deal was we just never paid a penny yeah uh, so yes yeah, so we got the food made. we literally just got pissed for three days it was absolutely fantastic yeah uh, and then it was time for the record and that was you're pretty pretty crazy because it was three weeks we all worked shifts basically so i remember i remember one night i got woken up about must be about two or three in the morning like, do you want to start warming up it's sure taking a bit wow so that was it yeah i put two in the morning there's a there's a little um, little behind the scenes video on YouTube somewhere if you if you search on the deadly waiting um, Barbados maybe or something like that you, you'll, yeah. you'll find it isn't it? there's not too many things on there from us and um, you can see you can literally see me yeah everyone's on the deck or whatever having a beer at three in the morning there's me in the room just sweating it out 
Were you? Were you? Are you moving forward as a player then as well? Here, this has got to be. I mean, relentlessly touring, and you know, playing uh, most nights with very little time off, and then you going and having to record and stuff like that quite regularly. Did you find yourself really kind of zoning into what who you were as a player and how you played? And were you were these the formations of a style for you? Were you getting yeah. each style? Yeah, I, I definitely found what I, was, what I was trying to create. I was definitely talking my way through the music for sure. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I was watching plays like Craig Reynolds. Um, he's um, absolutely insane. Obviously, I was playing with Dan Wilding, who was the drummer for Trigger, and these players were just absolutely superb. And, and I was a huge fan of architects, so that came into it as well. Um, uh, so I was creating this, I guess you'd just call this kind of, kind of classic metalcore sound, but I really enjoyed off-hits. And I was always a big time to get right. and off-hits and stuff. And uh, yeah, I was well within my element at this point. You know, I was definitely, I was confident. I was quick. I was um, bilingual between feet and hands. I was really, oh, yeah, I was well in my element by that point. Um, you know, just playing metal solid for what's that, six years or whatever, five years. Mm. Um, yeah, I was, yeah, I was very happy. Did at that you, point. Were, you, were you kind of at the stage now where you were, I imagine, getting endorsements as well and stuff like that, so you could choose what what sorts of pieces of kit you wanted to use and stuff. So it wasn't, it wasn't like where most of the time you work with what you've got you you would i would imagine at this stage have reversed it to being i can really have kind of anything i want now gear wise i can kind of play what i want did you find endorsements and stuff by this point yeah we were all we were all pretty endorsed up by this point which you know which is we were immensely grateful for i, I was with natal at the time and zildjian symbols and roland electronics okay and the, and the boys were in uh with ibanez and orange so with the rolling stuff, you were using triggers as well and that type of thing. Were you were you experimenting as well here, or were you kind of uh, we want to play with the metalcore st- sound and keep with that? But were you kind of looking at other things, bringing in samples and stuff like that? Yeah. So at the, at the beginning, I was not necessarily beginning, but like towards the beginning, I was definitely yeah. trigger trigger mind tr- trigger minded. I always wanted to yes. kick trigger. I always wanted to kick trigger because I was that very you know produced sound. You know. Yeah. Um. You know, gunshots. You know. Mm. And um. But then as time went on, it was more as a, um, a backing track style thing. You know, you know, I initiated the kicks. And I always liked to, it sounds so stupid now I think about it, but I always liked to play the sub drops. I didn't like okay. being on track. I liked to hit them yeah. myself and have that full, that full energy with it. Yeah, there's an energy uh, to, to, to what, 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 uh, what Thomas is talking about is that the, for, for some, there'll be people, there will be an, a, an immense amount of drummers who will be listening to this. And for the, non, the non-drummer out of there, um, sub drops, how would we best explain that to a, to a non-drummist? They're the uh, lowest explosion. points and the biggest points of a song, if you will, like they're the kind of heaviest sort of parts in, in an energy point of view, to keep it very broadly speaking. So I understand why you would want to do that yourself and not trigger that because there's a, it's like hitting the big chord, if you will. It's like hitting the big riff. It's it's, it's the drum equivalent of that, like, you know, and subs and stuff like that refer to the, the, the frequencies of which these occupy. Um, yeah, so you would... That, that 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 leads into playing that live that, that the, the energy that's created with that like it's an incredible part of that did you were uh, so we're, we're kind of recording stuff did the album did the album get released it did didn't it did, yeah yeah, did it, get, yeah it got released yeah yeah, yeah. It ended up being i think either five or six i think it was a s- five tracks i think at the end right uh, but it was some of the most proudest work i believe all of us had done at this point yeah and um, there was a track on there <clears throat> called blind preacher which was our debut video from that record uh-huh. And um, it was just us touring, and it's such, uh, you know, at least twice a year. I'm not, I'm not um, uh, nervous to say this. I still watch that twice a year at least because it is reminiscence from that is sublime. 
Yeah, I I enjoy looking back at stuff like, and I imagine music, musicians all over do listen a little bit and look at their own thing. But they, you don't when you when you look back at something like you watch a live video and you're a musician, you don't necessarily remember the the flubs and the clams and the things that went wrong. You remember what happened that night or the loading or someone you met there. It does. It's weird. It's weird when you watch a live video yourself. You don't necessarily see the plane, although that's a part of it. You think about, oh yeah, and that the next that night I met so and so, and we did this, and it's, it triggers 100%. those weird memories, doesn't it? You know, it's fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. It's that. So, so why then, and when did it ultimately fall apart? Well, that was it. So when we left, <clears throat> sorry, when we left um, Barbados after finishing the record, I think we nearly finished. It. I think we, we basically finished it. Mm. Um, I, think, I think we had to go back to the studio for a week or whatever back in England. Yeah. And um, at that point, I'm going to say just roughly a month after, or a couple months after. Yeah. Um, we were getting we were getting emails from bands, just other you know other little local bands, um, saying we'd given Mark a grant for this DIY deal, you know it's it's gone over, but we're not hearing from him anymore. So you know if you want an email or if you got a direct contact or anything, mm. and we were like, oh that's really weird, you know we'll give him an email or whatever, or here's his phone number or whatever, um, and then that happened again and again and again and again and again, and it just kept happening over like a six month period. We must have had yeah loads and loads and loads of emails basically of, of kids just saying. We've given this guy a grand. What's going on? What's going on? And yeah. um, so we, I can't remember exactly, but it all kind of came to light, and um, that, that Mark was basically just a crook, and he was just taking money, right. taking the money. And they were all young, you know. We looked at their, some of their Facebook pages, and they'd have like two hundred likes or whatever, and they were young. And you could just tell that, you know, they'd ask, you know, they'd say, "Mum and Dad, we're going to get signed or whatever." I'm obviously speculating, but you know, they all look quite young, so yeah. it's kind of, you know, Mum and Dad, you know, if, if you all of you chip in a couple of grand here, we can get an album out, you know. So of course they're going to do it for a little kid. And yeah. um, that was that. It was just, you know, and that would kill so many young musicians, which fucking sucked. Yeah, yeah. And we all we all felt that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was that was it. It wasn't it wasn't the money in my eyes. You know, Mark, you know, we found out that Mark stole seven and a half grand from us. Yeah. And um, because uh, my my dad was actually our manager when we were younger, when we were in that you know that kind of first record, beginning yeah. of the second record phase. My dad looked after us because again he was quite business minded as well. Yeah. <clears throat> so he was the middleman between us and the record label because we were just young idiots. Um. And when Mark said we had to be nominated for the Krang Awards, he actually told my dad that it cost five grand. And so he paid it. We didn't know this, of course. Um, right. And actually being nominated for the Krang Awards is free. So he just yeah, 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 no So he just ended up being a crook. And that's, that's when it all went wrong. You know, everyone, at this point, it all come to light. Everyone knew. It was very, very obvious. He, you know, he went to court, I believe, and all that stuff. And that was that. That was the record label. That was the record deal done. Yeah. Everything's yeah. off. Everything's off. So... We were then on our own two feet for the first time in five or six years. What were you what during that six month period? I'm interested. What were you What were you doing then? When you're sitting around, kind of waiting for the phone to ring or, or waiting for a response for an email, are you doing anything? Did it Did it literally come to a halt? And it was like, okay, well, we're in stasis here. We got the record out, and that still went out to everyone. So I'm assuming mm-hmm. that that was still, again, if memory serves, that was still on his bill. Yeah, that wasn't self released. That was still released via Rising Records. Uh-huh. So. I'm assuming we just toured that record, if I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't use, I, can't, I, I, I can barely ever remember sitting down between now and 15, so I'm assuming I didn't sit down. <laughs> it does move like a whirlwind. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of finished that up, and, and things become very apparent that that's, like, that's no longer a thing now. Yeah. Was Did you all kind of come together and go, what do we do now? Or were you, were you already fractious and kind of deciding that we may have to look at something else? Did, was there a moment there? 
there was definitely a moment we all went to to our bassist's house as we always did because he had a really cool kind of garden we could just chill and have some beers so we, we did that yeah we decided what we're going to do what's the plan and we were like right you know well let's just let's focus on the new record and stuff um you know as soon as you release one record you're like right well let's write another one yeah <laughs> you know you don't like people don't see a record for two years but they it's because they've been writing their record for two years yeah you know um so yes we're like we're just like getting on that we're on our NTV now let's just let's just do some shows let's write a new record <clears throat> and um we started writing a new record and we've done we've done a tour with fearless band by killers do you remember those guys yeah 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 right some of the most loveliest dudes are in that band and um we just did a tour with them because <clears throat> they're very heavy makeup based. Our singer kind of got really, really into that. Yeah. So he started wearing more makeup as the time was going on. Mm. And he, and then he started to really like that kind of music as well. That kind of, um, Black Veil Brides. MCR yeah. Kind of vibe. yeah. So when we started writing that, that fourth record, it became apparent very, very quickly that that was the way that Luke wanted to write. And mm. that, that was not the way that we were into. We still wanted to write these really heavy metal records with some catchy choruses. Yeah. And that came, became, became very apparent. And um, that was that. Luke, Luke called a meeting. He said, you know, this isn't working. You know, wow. I want to I write this kind of music. And you guys don't. We were like, no, we, we, we really don't. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. like we can. It wasn't like, oh, I guess we could do that. You know, let's try it. It was, no, we, 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 we do not want to do that. Yeah. And yeah. that was that. <clears throat> that was the end of Deadly Waiting. Wow. What a story. <laughs> that is just in itself. It's just an interesting sort of like, you know, little little cycle of, of how things are one, one of the things that people maybe don't realize if if they're not if they've never toured and stuff is that what does happen is you if you go out with another band you do pick up a lot of musical stuff from them you you're like oh i like that i like what they're doing maybe by osmosis or maybe by design and you you kind of come away going actually i'm going to try and employ these things in there and they kind of it's weird how they involve your own musical decisions as well. So I, only, I mean, listen, let's, let's, let's be fair. Hats off to him. He comes out and says, I want to do this. And you go, yeah. well, you don't. And, you know, even at that younger age, you're still mature enough to go, okay, well, we know that that's not going to produce good music. Let's move on and, and, and move forward. It sounds as though it was all very mutual and very friendly. Yeah. You know, we all still chat now. You know, we all, yeah. we all, we don't, we don't chat every day because you know, all of us live all over the country now. Yeah. Um, but you know that would that would that would not have been easy for Luke. Luke was Luke was the face of the Deadly Waiting for sure. We were just the, mm. the four geezers that that wrote the heavy stuff in the back. You know he would sure. get cupcakes and paintings and pictures and yeah. Oh, yeah, the amount of cues he had to the amount of cues that kid had to have a photo with him was mental. Yeah, and he loved it. He <laughs> loved it. <laughs> he should do. Well, me and me and the boys were happy we could just go to the bar and you know he had to handle merch on his own because he had to take all the pictures. We can just go to the bar and have a beer. It didn't matter. What <laughs> Isn't it funny? I, I saw a band once. What were they called? Um, I don't want to name check them. I think they were called La Confenza. I think they were called. They were a punk band from Italy. Mm-hmm. And they were playing some small festival. And the lead singer, who was obviously adored by, by the, the, the female uh, of, of the crowd, uh, were, were particularly enamoured with the, with the lead singer. A very good-looking young man. Yeah. And at the very last song, he jumps and stage dives, which, you know, that's, that's all very cool. And the crowd yeah. carried him. He carry him over, maybe, I don't know, there's about two, three hundred people in this place, carry him over to the merch stand. He gets <laughs> dropped off at the merch stand. And he goes, and without a, without a, bro, wiping his brow, goes straight in to selling merch to a, a clutch of women that have already made their way to the merch stand. And I was like, that's what you're meant to do as a fucking front man. That's, that's it. You want to be at the front? Yeah. That's what's going to happen. Luke had, Luke had no, you know, we'd liked him to load in but we and load, load out. But when it came to setting down anything, we were like, look, mate, you need to go to that merch stand immediately after every gig. Yeah. And that was it. That was it. Um, yeah, it was great. 
and he, and he yeah. yeah like you said he absolutely loved him we, we loved him doing it too we, we got you know we got a couple of pictures which was nice but it was more about him so him him losing that um that love and everything because yeah, it couldn't be couldn't have been easy easy for him to just no. Just yeah, well, band, you know? essentially he's seceding from from the band, and he's on his own almost in it from a mindset point of view. Whereas at least there's there's several of you to kind of go, okay, what are we going to do? He's that's a big decision. It's very mature. That's a tough tough decision to make. So did you kind of the rest of the band kind of put go to the side and go, okay, what are we going to do now, or what happened then? Yeah, we had a follow up meeting. We were all actually gutted, you know. The, the big, the biggest decision we we, which I, I, which if I'm totally honest, I don't, I don't think I've ever said this in my life. I regret it because we we changed our name because because Luke left. We we then changed our name. Hold on a second. There we go. There you go. It's better. There you go. That's it. That's all right. And yeah, so yeah, so I don't think I've ever said this before out loud, but we we decided to change our name, and I wish we'd kept it because. It would have been a lot easier because we started a band from the ground up again, which, as every musician knows, is the toughest part. Yeah. You know, getting your name back out there. And it helped that we had a, a, a credible history, but it did not help enough, for sure. So we started a new band with the, all the rest of us, bar Luke, and we got a new singer in uh, called Jam. And we started Sleep Inertia, which was just straight up heavy. Some clean singing, but it was way, way heavier, which is what we wanted to do. Mm. And um, it just didn't work out, to be honest. Just, just didn't work out. We, yeah. you know, we were going back to doing little gigs and and paying for stuff and it was like fuck me this is hard I forgot how hard this was <laughs> yeah well it, what, what people what people don't realize as well this is the same for like even established artists to move into a new project is that nothing carries more weight than sticking around so if you've been going for a long time that that there's a currency in that because your name is in a lot of places it's 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 all over the internet if you will Whereas if you have to start from square one and create, for one of a better term, a brand, there's nothing out there. Your footprint isn't anywhere. You have to literally start again, and it can be crushing. It can be. It can be incredibly. And also, what's what's horrible is that it become you become attuned to if it's not working. Like you said, it it just wasn't coming together. It yeah. wasn't making you know the, the the noises that you wanted to make. And so you 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 have to quickly make make a decision to change streams or go and do something else. So how long was that then before you went? This isn't really way working out. Was it quite a quick process? Or it was about a year and a half. We did a record. Yeah, uh, we did a record called um, Growth. Uh, what was it called? Decay Trans Growth De- Growth Decay Transformation. I think it's called a Growth Transformation Decay. I think it's the first one. Growth Decay Transformation. I think it's that. Okay. But I should have written this down. Before. <laughs> okay. I forgot how far back I was going in my brain. Um, <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so we we did a couple of really cool gigs. Actually, you know, we did some really cool tours. Actually, we toured with Valley to Blaze. I think they're still still kicking about. They were sick. Rich new on drums. He's fucking rad. Um, I think he's left actually. And some other cool band, Roads to Nowhere as well. We did some gigs with Roads to Nowhere. Um, yeah, we did some cool some cool little tours. But it was again, it was cool little tours which we hadn't done for such a long time. And it wasn't an arrogance thing, you know. It wasn't just well, we're above this. It wasn't anything like that. We had just forgotten how hard it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the music industry, you know, we were seventeen. So that's two thousand and seven. We got signed by sending out a CD in two thousand and fourteen. That's not how it works. Not at all. So yeah. it was then like, fuck. How do you? How do you do this again? What is going on? So yeah, because you know, it's like uh, you kind of when you when you when you move out of being looked after by someone who kind of takes care of that element for you, and um, you and you have to kind of DIY. And you already would have gone from a shift like you say from sending cds out and stuff and the you know just the likes of myspace and napster and that sort of thing now you're coming into what 2014 yeah now how you present a band 
how you publicize a band and how you connect with the people is entirely different from when you started. Entirely different. So did, did you, when you've kind of finished up with that project then, what, where was your head then? Because that's tough. That That's kind of like starting again. Yeah, you know? so I, I realized that I hadn't, I had never played another genre in my life. I'd literally played metal and I, you know, I hadn't even played another song in my life. I had just played a Deadly Waiting catalogue. That's all I'd done. Yeah. So that was the hardest bit. It was like, wow, I've not played pop, rock, punk, indie. I've not done any of these things. Yeah. Um, so when the Deadly Waiting split up, I had so much more time. So I actually joined, when I was in Sleep and Nurture, I was also, I'd also joined As The Sun Sleeps at this point. Right. Okay. So that's what I was going to, I was going to ask. I was at what point does uh, As The Sun Sleeps come into this? It's obviously about now then. Yeah. So was it, why join the other thing as well? Well, I realised obviously my... As well as? Yeah, so the, when I was in Delhi waiting, it was constant. It was just absolutely constant. Mm. So when that time was freed up, it was like write rehearsals with Sleep Inertia, maybe a couple of gigs, maybe do some writing. And it was, it was, I had so much more free time, which I hated. I hated having free time. I still do now. Yeah. Um, and so I met Joe Beck at actually got a job at this point at Nationwide and I met him at Nationwide playing football and um, so I had to get a job like a real man <laughs> after all the touring and then uh, yeah and then I met Joe through that and he showed me some songs I was like mate do you want to jam these sound great and he just showed me these songs on his phone at a pub and it was you know proper old school and um, yeah I, just, I loved him as a person still do and um, yeah I just straight away jumped in the room with him we did a couple of tunes and we're like well, let's, let's you know this, this sounds all right let's, let's do something with this and that was, that was the start. That was the start of that. And then I was juggling As The Sun Sleeps and Sleep Inertia, which is probably, you know, probably where it, was, probably where it also went wrong because I wasn't oh, focusing on one group. Oh, hello. That's that. Uh, it, just, it just clipped out. I caught it, though. Um, so we should be good there. Yeah, so that's what I was leading to because it's like it's one of the things that gets leveled when someone takes on another project is that you can't immediately focus on, if, on, on multiple projects. You can only focus on one. Um, yeah. I don't necessarily agree with that, um, uh, but I do agree that you've released whilst you're present with with a, at a particular jam or recording. You have to be entirely present for that. There, did you find then your playing's changing? It must do as you approach another genre. But do you kind of shift, kind of even how you're playing the drums, even as a musician? Did that start to feel as though it was changing as well? No, you're moving away from maybe subs and and that type of thing to more melodic playing, shall we say? Yeah, so, I, yeah, def, most definitely. So, um, ben, ben, the guitarist of Sleep Inertia, was definitely the mastermind behind the whole Sleep Inertia thing. He programmed the drums, which I always liked, because guitarists write drums not like drummers. You know, they don't, yeah. have, that, they don't, they don't have that box. He'd put double kicks under absolutely everything, you know. He'd write these insane drum parts I would never think of. So I actually liked that formula. Yeah. As lazy as it makes me sound, it was, it was, a, it was a choice. Um, yeah. But, you know, Ben was doing so, so much. And I think he was getting, well, he definitely was getting very frustrated with the fact that no one else was pulling their weight. But I was also then obviously doing As Sun Sleeps and really enjoying that different style of playing. The lucky, mm. thing, the lucky thing with As Sun Sleeps is that at the beginning, we were very, very punky. It was still very melodic, uh, melodically sung, but I was still going, you know, really punky stuff. Uh, and the fields were still very metal based, you know. So I was definitely, I was definitely putting metal, metal drums inside pop music for sure the very yeah. beginning anyway so this is this is the thing that i i kind of talk a lot when we talk to musicians particularly on the show one of the things that i always say is that yes okay ladies and gentlemen this is the 
and, and, and weight and validity in taking other styles and listening to them and then applying them back to your your, your original style. Um, you know, I, it, it kind of adds other colors and other palettes to the style. It's not kind of some of the best music uh, has been created because it took a slight step out of its particular genre. And I always think it's you get more as a musician when you piece of you know it, it, it informs you as a musician it, it, and it will make it better it's not to be afraid of nothing to be afraid of no absolutely no absolutely i was definitely chopping and changing back and forth um in in mindset between pop punk and metal but yeah sleep and was still was still my main thing for sure you yeah know, as sleeps was just me and joe at this point it wasn't even a band you know um then we started pulling in some people we tried out some people and then one guy stuck and then we tried out another guy and then this other guy stuck and that was it we were kind of glued in pretty quickly within six months we were pretty glued in with the lineup which is the current lineup you still see uh, still see today with me joe broad and trees yeah um, at the gig you, you saw us at yeah um, but sleeping on sleeping was still my main squeeze for sure because i was still holding on to the metal and playing with those guys as well obviously playing with those people for six or seven years at this point you have such a bond when writing you know i knew exactly where ben was going to go or where steve was going to go they all knew where i was going to go you know um yeah 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 so then um yeah, then I was with Joe and that lot of boys, and then we, yeah, we, then we started gigging, I guess. We started gigging in 2014. It was, all, it was all pretty go from there as well, I guess. Yeah. That's one of the things to, to, uh, as well that maybe some people who are not in bands won't realise. When we talk about an act or a band being tight, yes, we're talking about musically, they're all being on the same page and musically playing in time, in tune, all those things that you'd expect, yes. But there's also a weird... Um, a sort of magic that happens when you know when uh, it's, something's going to change to this or change to that, or you're going to slightly go behind the beat, or you're going to ride the beat, or you're going to push the beat. And, and there's a wonderful push and pull in that, that happens with, with bands. Wonderful example of this is ACDC. So a lot of times people think they write very simple music, and they do. But to actually you know play like them, and they've been playing for many, many decades with the same roughly the same lineup, those nods... I suddenly, when you first start playing as a band and you're not very good, you nod to the guitar player to come in with this, you nod to the drummer, or you, or you turn yeah. around and go, this is the end. Those nods get very subtle. Then they get to be an almost unperceivable, and then they disappear, and it becomes something psychic. It becomes very weird, and that's why it, it's, it's so important to jam with other musicians, and that's why it's so important to do this live, and you hone that to a fine point, so I can understand why you'd still want to be you know because to, to lose that would be terrible because it really helps the music so i totally understand why you know the as the sun sleeps you, you kind of keep almost the same guys because it's it's such a precious thing that you that you lose when you when you when it's people who've never played together before like you know that yeah. unsaid thing you know no totally you know, and I, you know i'm very lucky now that i get the, the band the, all, the, all the bands i do play with that i i can write with very easily they're all absolutely superb and make me sound a lot better than I am. <laughs> did you find you, did you find yourself writing more then? Did you start looking at songwriting as a, as a part of your of your musical spectrum? No, I've, I've never never been a good songwriter. I've always been I've always <laughs> been a huge structure guy. Right. I always have been. I, I know exactly. You know, if, even if it's it's odd barring or you're changing the time signature or stuff or whatever, whatever, whatever it is, is changing. I, yeah. I, I I kind of pride myself a little bit on having a, a good. Uh, picture of what should happen yeah. when it goes here and when it should yeah. come out and the transition and yeah. what, what the next transition is. I've always There's a number very... of great examples of where um, what, one of the best ways a band can work sometimes is that the uh, the other people that don't play your prescribed instruments 
can offer a, a different opinion that you wouldn't have considered because of the mindset of the instruments, for example. Yeah, yeah, man, um, you know, I, the two examples I can think of, uh, one's Lars. Lars Yuri gets a, a ton of grief, but he's very much a, a form guy, like a kind of a piece together. So you think of Sandman and you think of that riff. That riff was wrote by Kirk Hammett, but it was constructed by Lars. The tale at the end of it was him, where he's like, why don't you do this twice? But the tale, that's, that's famous. But also, I'm reminded of... Um, uh, I think yeah, was it was it Les Binks? He was the drummer for um, for Judas Priest, and he was plunking around on an acoustic guitar, and he very crudely played the called uh, "Beyond the Realms of Death," and it was basically just a kind of a, a bar chordy kind of riff. But it, it isn't necessarily what you would always play as a guitar player. But then obviously those guitar players jumped on that because it sounded interesting. So it's, sometimes it's nice to throw that out there. What I would suggest, ladies and gentlemen, when you're next in the jam room is not to uh, isolate the drummer or the bassist or whomever and, and is, to, is to ask their opinion and go, what do you think of that? And and kind Because of, that's one of the beautiful things is we've all got ears, and but we all hear things slightly differently like, you know. Well, absolutely. Like I, like I said, Ben was always programming the drums for sleep inertia because it was stuff I would never think of. Not in yeah. a million years. Yeah. So... Um, so now, when do we get to kind of couples therapy? When do we get to that? Oh, we're, we're still a few years off that. Well, what, what's really in the good. interim then? What's in the valley between that then? So I went, so I decided uh, just after sleep inertia and still doing as some sleeps. So our sleep inertia kind of just, just disbanded. It just, just didn't work. So we all just kind of left it, um, just left it alone, really. We did the record and that was that. And yeah. I decided to go back to ACM where I originally was at 17, just because I had right. such a great time to do my degree. Um, so I did a degree in music performance, obviously specialising in drums. And it was, it, I did that because, yes, I could blast beat really quick and do some quick kick stuff or whatever, you know. But I, yeah. couldn't, I, couldn't, I didn't really know what six-stroke rolls were or five-strokes rolls and all these crazy, you know, swing jazz. And I didn't understand any of that independence. I never had it. So yeah. I decided that I wanted to go back to university for two years and just absolutely hone in on my craft. So I'd become more professional, more business-minded, um, more understanding, better songwriter you know everything that comes with it and really really give it a shot and so, it so sounds it sounds like the, you, at the in the in the first sort of part of, of your musical life there you were very much kind of honing the muscle memory of things if you will the kind of learning to play and tour and that type of thing and then there was a point where you were like you know what i really need to invest in the instruments itself and kind of let let's fine tune it and kind of like you know i, I can speak now but I, I need to be able to sing if you will uh yeah, from a human point of view so when you went when you went to study, you were, you were studying things like, you know, uh, how to play your instrument better and song construction and that type of thing. But we were also studying, like, a, the business side of music. Yes, we were doing business. We were doing um, songwriting, um, all the music theory stuff, which is another huge reason why I wanted to go. Because I couldn't read drum music. I literally could not read yeah. my drum music. I did my grades before university, and um, I just learned the songs. I just learned the songs, and I had to tell the examiner, examiner, I'm not going to turn a page, because if you don't say that, then you get marked down for not turning a page. Not, but, yeah, yeah. Because so, I didn't know how to read, so I thought if I go back to this, if I go to this college, I can learn how to read. I can understand what what a fuck a keyboard is, <laughs> you know, uh, and understand a lot more about my instrument, the industry, and all that stuff. And you know, and I really, really tried hard while I was there. You know, I probably, as always, not as hard as I should have. You know, it was still university after all. Um, I, I, what did what do they start with when they start talking about the music industry and the business? What's what's the first kind of things that they look at? Is it contracts? Yeah, it's contracts, contracts yeah. and stuff, and, th- and, 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 and agreements it shows and stuff like that. Did he talk about PRS and stuff like that? Is that in the first part of it? What did he do? 
Yeah, so it, was, it wasn't loads. It was one business lesson, I think, every week or two. And it was only an hour long. So, you know, there's only so much industry you can cram in an hour. Yeah. Um, so I think you spoke about contracts for fucking ages. <laughs> yeah. And then um, there was a lot of stuff I already knew, which was, which was lucky. So I just kind of sat on my phone for most of it. And, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so they did loads of contracts. So he said, yeah, they did PRS a little bit, but not loads. Obviously, the industry had changed. So they were talking about, I guess they were talking about PRS for sure. They were talking about... Um, Obviously, insurance and all the things that can go oh, right, wrong. Yeah. Huh? How to get, how do you have basically how 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 to not get swindled is basically what. It was yeah, yeah. Did you? I, and like you say, a lot of the stuff you'd already kind of experienced. Sadly, at the wrong end of it, you know. So <laughs> you, you were kind of almost a little bit prepared. So how long? How long does that whole period take up then? So again, sorry. Say again. How long does that period take up of studying and kind of learning and that type of thing? How long did that take up? Uh, that took up two years. Mm-hmm. That took up two years, but in my on my second year was when I got approached about drum teching. Right. Which I'd already, I'd already dabbled in drum teching um, back in 2012. I dabbled a little bit. I did um, some pop stuff. So I, I drum teched for Laura and Vula a few times uh-huh. like, for like a couple of tours. I helped out um, doing our drums and I did Jungle and Crystal Fighters. Right. So I did, I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a long tour. It was about a year, about a year of doing stuff mm. on and off. Um, and that's, that was, yeah, that was, yeah, it was like 2013 and stuff. Cause that's when I was thinking about maybe, uh, maybe I should go back to uni because I'm enjoying this drum tech stuff. This is cool. I'd never done this before, mm. but it wasn't playing drums. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, that's, that's the thing. It's like uh, uh, one of the misconceptions of people that move in, in, who think they can tech and uh, don't realize that it's not just about playing the instruments. Uh, it's, it's largely more about the maintenance of that instrument, you oh, know, yeah. and you do, yeah. you, yes, you'll sit and you'll play. A sound checks and what have you, but you won't put in the time as you would if you're an actual musician. It doesn't work like that. It's very much. It's much more about the maintenance. It's much more about what the artist wants, about what making sure they're happy. So you you kind of go, okay. I think I I think I'd really like to move into sort of the the tech side of things. What's your first move then when you go, okay, I want to do that? So back when I was twenty twenty odd when I did the Lauren Vula stuff, I just got approached by a friend of mine who I'd bugged for a while because his life just looked absolutely sick. It looked so cool. You know, he <laughs> four buses, he was in Switzerland or whatever. I was like, fuck me, that looks mental. I want that. So I yeah. messaged him and I messaged him and then for ages I may have got nothing. And one day he said, actually I can give you a gig in the MasterCard in Chelsea. I was like, sick. MasterCard, Master Sound? Come over. And I was like, yeah, mental, amazing. He was like, yeah. right, come come and shadow me one day. So I was like, okay, cool. So I watched him set up the drums, then I watched him set up the cello, then the harp, then the violin. Then Who the was that? Was that yeah. Alex? It was a, oh no, not Alex, well, Alex Baker. Yeah. He's, he's their tech now. but He's their tech now, right, yeah. Yeah, originally it was Cody Bramble. Okay, I don't he's know. He's one of my, who I owe a lot of my career to, so if you ever listen to this, thank you, Cody. And, uh, he, and now he texts for Harry Styles and, oh, right, okay. and George Ezra as well, so he's one of the big boys now, and he, bloody yeah. it's unbelievable and it's a one yeah. it's a wonderful human um so yeah so i did all that and then yeah i decided i wanted to go back to university and then i got a call in 2016 2016 20 no sorry 2017 2017 mm. or maybe 2016 as i said all blurred into one a little bit um was it tw- i'm gonna go 2017 i'm gonna go with that it's my final answer <laughs> my final answer mark 2017 going all in and um and i got a phone call from martin oldham now martin oldham runs drum tech support Mm. which is one of the biggest drum teching companies in the UK. You know, he does all the big ones. You know, he, he was currently out on tour with Niall Rogers and Sheik. Yeah. You know, um, so he, he was huge. So he, when he gave me a call saying, look, I've, I've heard from Cody, funnily enough, I was like, oh, my God, Cody again. 
um, that you were an excellent tech as well. And I was like, well, wonderful, thank you. Um, I'd like to give you a job. And I was like, I can't say no to this, mate. He's, he's the big dog. You know, it'd be ridiculous yes. to say no. Yes. Um, so then it was a very immediate decision of, right, I've got to now balance playing and teching, mm. um, which was a tough start. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's, it's mindsets, isn't it? It's a diff- slightly different mindset, isn't it? You have a different part, portion of your brain that looks after the, the two separate things. I know a lot of people who tech and are in bands, and there's always, like, if they ever know they're going to go out on a big tour, they always take a couple of days or a week off to kind of almost separate the two mindsets, like, you know. They are, they are two completely different things. And it was, it was you know, again, you know, so I've been, I've been the, the headliner I, in my career. I've been the yeah. support guy in my career, but I'd never been the tech in my career. So I was like, fuck right. And so my first day was so, so incredible. But, oh, my God, so different. So yeah. Different. Who, was the, who was the first person you were out with, a proper, if you will? So um, I'm still with them now, which is public service broadcasting. Do you know those guys? Okay. No, no, I don't. They are, mate, absolutely, they are the best dudes I've ever met in my life. Yeah. They are, and they're so, so cool. Like, such a random band to do. So they, they, they don't have any singing. They just have, they do now a little bit, but it's yeah. all about coda. But it's all, so every album is themed. So the album I joined on was about the Welsh mining, mining industry and how it collapsed within wow, okay. years. And the vocals over the top are just clips of um, interviews and things that right. happened. Um, and the music goes along with it, and there's a light show, and there's a television screen that has that goes along with it all as well. It's, it's like old VJ thing as well with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's an unbelievable show, mate. Absolutely wow. incredible. And they are all so so funny and lovely and wonderful. Um, it was it's been an absolute pleasure working. Is it is it is it percussion as well as drums? Is it a whole sort of thing? It sounds like it's more of a production. So luckily, there's two techs on that. You've just got Jack Bonnie who takes care of the percussion. Well, the the percussion guy also does keys and bass and guitar, so he kind of falls under that. Yeah. And then he does the main man, um, Will Goose, because I can't use every real name, it's not allowed. <laughs> and so I have to use their stage name, so Will Goose is the main man. Yeah. Will Goose, Will Goose Esquire, he'll tell me off not saying Esquire. Um, <laughs> Will Goose Esquire. Uh, and he does, he's the main guy, so Jack deals with um, Abraham and Will Goose, and I'll, I'll deal with um, um, Riggle, Rigglesworth. <laughs> trying to remember, trying to remember the stage names and all the real names. Um, but luckily, he just does drums and SPD. His kit's super easy. Yeah. Really, it's easy to maintain because kits are really, right, I, I guess I guess if anyone's looking for any advice, a drum kit is really, really easy to maintain as long as you maintain it all the time. Mm-hmm. If, you take, if you take a couple of days off, that bit of, uh, that bit of mark well, is going to be hard yeah, to get people off. Think that, people think that if, when, when, when you have a day, it says day off on the tour sheet, people think that that's a day off for the crew and it just it that's that is just not the way it works no. you can't leave stuff if you're if you're touring through somewhere very very hot and you leave all that stuff in, in equipment underneath in the bus and you pull that all out and expect it to fully work that day exactly, after right. being like that for a day good luck to you it's not going to happen and right. so with it, it's that constant maintenance did you what did you learn in those first couple of shows with them then was did it feel like deep end stuff or did you feel like okay i, I think i've got this but i'm getting it or so super so i was super lucky to land that band because they were yeah. they're super chill and they're super welcoming and super lovely yeah. um and I, and the, the first thing i realized was not to try too hard actually if i'm honest because yeah you overthink it and try too hard you're gonna make your mistake you're gonna make a mistake and you're gonna make it publicly where if you just yeah. just, just just do what makes it was it was do what makes sense over do mm. your hardest i know it sounds really silly yeah. But when I no, started no, no, out, no. I was I was marking out every single little bit of the kit and every single little leg, and I looked down at the carpet; it was just covered in tape, and I was like, "That looks ugly." That yeah, looks ugly. yeah, yeah. Because I'm 
because I'm forgetting about my natural my natural instinct as a drummer. Obviously, a kick drum's going to go there, and if the kick drum there, obviously the hi-hat's yeah. going to go here. Yeah. Where I'm marking up absolutely mental amounts of the kit of the of the rug, and it just looked ridiculous. Yeah. And I took away some tape, and I was like, well, obviously that's going to go there. If that kick is there, that hat hat has to go there. It'd be mm. ridiculous if it didn't. So I so I took away some bits, and I, and I looked down, and I was like, that looks so much prettier because the aesthetic of the show is also a huge part of it. You know, mm. you know, it's like when you take down cables. You know. Yeah, you've got to have that that stream of cable looking really slick. You can't just have it. You can't you can't have yeah. tape all over it, and you can't have it looking messy. It has to be somewhere in between. Mm. And that was what I learned is that the in between is the sweet spot. If you've got I, yeah, if you've got a cable all covered in tape, and it's you know don't get me wrong, it's it's very safe and it's not gonna it's not gonna break or anything, but it looks ugly because it's just covered in tape. Yeah, but you have the other end where you know you've got a little bit slack. You're like okay, so it's not so much tape, but that is dodgy. That's got a little loop on it. If somebody catches their foot, then that's just that's really yeah. bad. Then you've got the middle spot where if that tape is there and tape, that tape is there, but you've got a little bit of tape in the middle where no one's going to trip. It's nicely put together. That's the sweet spot. Mm. That's well, why I learned very quickly. A, a large amount of it comes from the as techs and, 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 and crew and stuff is the, the, the whole game is that the, the audience must know that you are not there. They must have no hint that there was someone there to make that happen other than the musicians. So if you're seen on camera, if, 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 when, it, when, it, when the camera looks at the stage set up and it sees a whole bunch of tape it knows it ruins the illusion it's the strings that you see kind of moving all the smoke and mirrors it's you can't get you can't have a scene i was always mortified if the the band was doing a live show and i watched back on it and you could see me in any way i was always <laughs> mortified because i was like you mustn't know that i'm there it's the reverse of being a rock star you've got it's almost like you, you're not meant to be there at all and the, the best shows are the ones where and um, people don't even realize when, when they when you go oh everything okay and you tell them about a problem that they didn't even realize oh yeah that went down did it yeah yeah but we sorted it yeah there, there was there was one time i felt so I felt oh sorry say again no no keep going keep going oh sorry um yeah there was this one time i worked for you know Bauhaus filmer uh, peter murphy yeah 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 so I, I did that tour i did that uk and europe tour um that was last. That was last year. Last year, I think. No, it wasn't. That's a lie entirely. It was the year before. The year before. Yeah. And um, it was my last gig, gig because they were off. So I just done the whole of UK, just done the whole of Europe, and we ended in Brixton. And then they were off to oh, where were they? Greece. They were off to Greece for just three more days, which I wasn't going to do. Right. Um. So I did the Brixton show. Me and me and P had a, a special relationship. He, we really he liked me a lot, and he was he was a funny dude. He was a funny dude to say the least. And um, he said Thomas. He was like my friend, Thomas, today I'm going to bring you on stage and you're going to say goodbye to everyone. I was like, no, I'm not. Please, please, <laughs> please don't do that. Please don't do that. He's like, no, Thomas, I'm going to do it. I was like, oh, mate, I really, really, please don't do that. And I thought he was bluffing. I thought he was bluffing. And then there's a bit where he plays the, um, the, um, oh, what's, what's it called? It's going to say, um, the voice, the voice melodica thing. Melodica, oh, I, melodica. Uh, oh God, it name escapes me too, yeah. Yeah, the melodic, yeah, and there's a bit where I have to I have to hide behind a bass cab and give him that, and then he gives and it back to me. me. Yeah, and he does this thing, he does this big stage thing, it's really great, and then he then he passes the bass cab and brings it to me, and then I run off stage. But this time, yeah, I go to grab the melodica from him, and he grabs my arm, <laughs> and then that's it. He brings me to the front of stage, at the yeah. end of the song. I'm just stood there with my in my black, you know, my black t-shirt, <laughs> black trousers, my little cap, <laughs> and he says, and he, he says, Scott, bring up the lights, and that's it. The whole lights come up on. <laughs> And I just stood there, catting myself. I love it. And he goes, and he goes, everyone, this is Thomas Shrimpton. 
it is his last day today with us and we're going to miss him and i was and he was and that was it cheers up and everything i was like oh my god so it I gave, is I, nice I, yeah. I, gave, I gave him a little dab and that was it i was off yeah it is nice when bands do that too yeah then you kind of recognize it did the crew and they'll give you like a song to play uh yeah. you know i've had, yeah. had that a few times like oh you do the last song you know whatever that's that's yeah. nice that, that that's them tipping the hat one of the things i would say say as well is that especially when you go out uh, and maybe your first couple of jobs things are going to go wrong ladies and gentlemen and um, oh, you know oh, it, hell, yeah. they always do uh, every show has something and if you want to see it, the best way I can explain it is it's like a, a meter. If you imagine a meter uh, filling up, and if you make a mistake and then panic because of that mistake, the meter fills up a little bit more. Yes. And then if you keep panicking, <laughs> it fills up. And when it reaches the top, nothing else, it'll just complete, always go wrong. So the key thing is, is when it does go wrong, and it will go wrong, because otherwise, be, I've seen it, radically scale out of control when things go wrong you know but it sounds as though you had a blast doing this 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 tech thing it sounds as though it kind of really awoke another part of 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 you as a musician as well kind of like it seems like you're coupled with learning about the instruments and learning about the business you really kind of getting a whole sort of really good and well balanced sort of education it seems yeah, like yeah I, I definitely learned a hell of a lot and i still love being a tech now i still absolutely love it um, and you mate, things have gone wrong. Things have definitely gone oh, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. Okay. <laughs> I remember my very first gig. Uh, I was uh, taking for PSB, very first mm. one at uh, the Electric Ballroom in London. Okay. And, um, my first day, and, and I, I, I'm quite good now. But back then, I literally only knew things about drums. I didn't know guitars. I didn't know pedal boards. I didn't know any of that stuff. I was just a drummer that I had to be good at drum taking as well, which is quite enjoyable. Yeah. There was a, but we did the we did the sound check all great support act goes on great we get to our we're going on we're all rolled on drums are checked great we're ready to go there's a buzz in the monitor and 45 minutes we were late because we could not figure out where this buzz had come from 45 and there's nothing i could do i offered i offered help yeah. but I, I offered help there was like no, sometimes there's no nothing idea. you can do and you have to kind of just hold your own and go okay that was okay. it and, and um yeah, and then we were just saying, what happened here? And it turned out that someone had unplugged something, basically. Someone yeah. somebody had just unplugged something. But it's those things, you just got to keep your cool. You know, yeah. Jack, Jack, Jack was very good. He's been in the industry for a long time. He's very, 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 very good at his job. And he didn't lose his call once. And if he did, you know, you know you've, got, you've got several thousand people looking at you going, come on, let's start. And you're going, I can't, mate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you want to get... So, you know, those, those things do happen. But it's keeping your call exactly as you said is, is a huge thing. Yeah. It's, it's the only way you're going to get through it. Yeah, because otherwise it just be it just becomes like honestly, the, the, a piano starts playing and you and you and you start falling around like a cloud if you don't if you if you lose it. But yeah, so do you you do the um you do the tech and thing. When does the the teaching come in? I think that's that, fascinating to me though. The teaching's new, so the teaching is post masters really. I did a bit okay. of spat, did spit spat teaching kind of throughout when I was off tours and stuff. But it's it's been yeah. since my masters that I pushed this teacher and drums kind of thing. Yeah. Um. Obviously, I met Let's Swim at university, and I met Couples Therapy in, when I moved to Brighton. So I, I did those kind of things before, and then I did my master's. And that was I always knew I wanted to do something with T-Shirt and Drums as, as a brand. Um, and I was a huge fan of Mike Johnston, who does Mike'sLessons.com, and a huge fan of um, Adam Tuminaro, who does OrlandoDrummer.com. Um, and what they are, they are banks they're just a website with loads and loads and loads and loads of incredible lessons basically so mike mm. johnson does loads of the cascara and all those kind of 
cool African drum beats and, all that. and just, just some just an incredible incredible person and drummer and you pay 200 pounds or whatever for the year and you have access to that to that website there's no one in the UK that's really doing that and that's why I wanted to hone in mm. so that's that's been my that's been my main uh job should we say um just trying to get that up and running so obviously you know I released t-shirts uh, today in fact yes yes yeah, sure. uh, yeah you can go pick up one of those <laughs> and um <laughs> Yeah, so now it's just getting the YouTube up and running because you want to get the Patreon ready, which is all just stuff I learned doing the Masters at Waterbury, really. Mm. Um, it's not the most you know exciting thing in the world to most people, but to me, I'm absolutely loving it. I think it's. Uh, I think we'll. I'll, I'll add a ton of links out to this, to this, uh, on the podcast, to the, to the, to the drumming uh, and teaching stuff. And one of the things that I think you'll find, ladies and gentlemen, especially if you're learning to drum and would like to go to somewhere, is Thomas has got a wonderfully relaxed way of approaching it. In a, in a really nice and open presentation style, I think that's something that sometimes I, you don't feel as though Thomas is shouting at you. Sometimes when you get a lessons, and you can sometimes feel that that person is telling you the information rather than explaining that information. And I think Thomas has got a wonderful way of explaining it and a, and a real nice sort of candor about it. I strongly advise checking out um, checking out everything he does. And, I, and like we often talk about as well, and if you are looking for a drum tech, I, I know several, and Thomas is at the top of many. Yeah, yeah. Um, are you going to lean into the into the uh, into the tech and lean into the teaching most definitely with the quarantine or what have you what's the kind of what are you what are you thinking about god i guess it all depends on this quarantine stuff man. Doesn't it, just... it is absolutely fucking crazy mm. i'm supposed to be on tour i can't say the band right now because sure. i'm contracted until a certain point yeah. Um, but I'm supposed to be in U- uh, UK tour September and U- uh, USA in October. Mm-hmm. Um, that USA tour is definitely not going to happen. There's no way the UK, mm-hmm. US are going to open those doors anytime soon. Yeah, I know it's still four or five months down the line, but there's a lot of health and safety that has to go into it. You know, you can't just chuck 30,000 people into a room after something yeah, like that. Yeah, you can't just displace that. Yeah, yeah. No, so I, I, you know, I haven't got my hopes up for that. I'm still hoping for the UK run. I think the UK might by then because we're, already kind of looking past the worst maybe mm. you know i'm no doctor man i've got a fucking clue what's going on i don't, I think, anybody else, I don't I think even the doctors have a clue that's the worst thing yeah. of it like i don't think even they do you know but it's Definitely. nice that you've 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 pivoted quite nicely in launching the the online thing i think that's fabulous i think that you've kind of you've just seen where the waves are and rode them quite 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 well which is see i think is is quite a, a good euphemism if you will of your of your your career so far you know what a super attitude to have from from moving to through which sounds like he's been thomas sounds like he's been in every single band that's ever existed since (laughs) 1995 and he's played through all these just just rolling with the punches thomas is a super nice guy and it comes across but what belies that slightly is he's a fantastic musician and you know and i think you should check out i'm going to put a link to as many of these bands as i can remember and <laughs> there's many bands as Thomas can remember um onto the podcast but um fantastic like it's been it's been great to chat and um, oh, we can we'll do we'll definitely ladies and gentlemen should we get thomas on again i think we probably should and um, Definitely check out all his work and definitely check out the uh, the, the, the the drum teaching. I think you, if you even got the slightest interest in, in drumming, I think you're really going to enjoy that. Um, beautiful. Thanks for thanks for being on, Thomas. I would just quickly say, yeah. uh, if you don't mind, of course. As um, always. Uh, so I'm just going to name a couple bands I'd love you to check out if that's possible. There we go. <laughs> just did a little plug at the end. Yeah, that's all good. <laughs> uh, couple therapy for sure. Um, they're, not, they're not called that, so they're just called couple therapy. Um Let's swim get swimming and let's swim sleeps. They're my boys. 
friends bands you've got ollie wade and and there's so many other bands i live to check out which i'll, I'll give to mark to listen to the group in the in the in the thread or whatever mm-hmm. um, and then yeah if you could just go check out my youtube t-shirt drums and pick up a tea if you like t-shirts i'm sure you like t-shirts it's getting hot uh drums dot big that's it that's, that's everything i've got going on oh, i do also, also i do a free one hour lesson to anyone who wants to get involved yeah so i think that's it i think that's something that you'll you'll you'll, you'll definitely see a lot of people get involved with i think that's fantastic that uh the one hour lesson um is going to be pretty intense that like have you thought about just on, as we as we close up here have you thought about talking about the business as a whole anyway just doing things about that I you still know, like I, I still we covered a lot more. today, but you know, you seem like you now you're in a very good position to advise as well. Uh, you know, if anyone's got any questions, oh mate, email me tshrimdrums at gmail.com. I am more than happy to get back to you. But if I'm honest, there's still maybe the industry, as you know, is changing every mm. single day, and especially with this going on now, there's going to be things I don't know for sure. Yeah. So yeah. you know, I, I'm more than happy to help anyone with any questions they may have, and I might not have the answer, which is you know absolutely fine. But hopefully, I can help in any way. Yeah. But I'm um, you know. Yeah, I can definitely help, but I don't, I don't want to, you know, I'll have to have a conversation about it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the wonderful Thomas Shrimpton, that's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks Thank for coming so on much, the show. Thank you. Thomas Shrimpton there. I, I, that was one of, the, one of the most enjoyable chats I think I've had since I've been doing the show. There's been some great episodes, and that was really kind of one that I think joins it, talking about contracts and stuff and what can happen, how you can kind of change your life and you can go in other directions you can choose other music you can kind of go in different forms and choose different ways of of expressing what you're doing and find different ways of of, of revenue streams and earn a living from doing that and i think it was a really interesting and positive conversation that, that, that thomas puts across and that's why i would suggest checking out all of his drum work that he's putting up he regularly puts up drum tutorials and things and inspirational stuff that i think you really would get a lot from if you were any musician not, not just a, a drummer I'll put links up to the, some of the various projects that he's involved in as well. Fascinating sort of journey, and I think uh, you would have got a lot from that. I certainly did, and that's the whole point of these things is that we listen to people's stories, we take knowledge and things that we think are interesting and inspirational from them and apply them to our own lives and hopefully in some way make our own lives better from it. And that's it sounds like a grand concept and for, for a little podcast like this, but it's those things that the messages that I'm getting back from people, people who listen to the show, and it's helping them kind of figure out life and figure out kind of where they are underneath the umbrella of metal music. And that's what's going to happen is that we're going to figure this out. We will get to the end of this pandemic and this virus thing and some form of normality will come back and we'll be able to get together and watch live music and play live music in front of an audience again. It will happen, folks. It will help happen, ladies and gentlemen. And once again, thanks for listening. And I will at some point see you at the show.